0: There's a, an old saying, <clears throat> it says, flattery is like cologne, uh, it's meant to be smelt, not swallowed. Uh, Proverbs puts it a little bit like like this way, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Uh, as we have looked at what uh, happens here in Luke chapter 20, and seeing what's, what's going on here, the this unlikely group of people have come to to Jesus and they're going to question him they're trying to to uh, to get him to to slip up and they start by flattery trying to get on his his good side and so in Luke chapter 20 and, and verse 21 says then they asked him saying teacher we know that you say and teach rightly and you do not show personal favoritism but Teach the way of God in truth. So this dripping with with flattery there, it reminds me of one of those iconic quotes from from Star Wars. It's a trap! Uh, And that's exactly what this is. This is a trap. They're throwing out the the honey. They're they're, uh, pouring out this flattery in a way that they're hoping will trap Jesus into their uh, little schemes to be able to take him and get rid of him Uh, and it's a group of of unexpected allies here we saw last week as we looked and we're going to finish this week looking at at this question which comes from the the Pharisees and the scribes before we move on next week to the Sadducees take their turn and so we'll talk about them next week but just as a way of reminder of where we were Luke chapter twenty. Verse 20 says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. And said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words, and in the presence of the people, and they marvelled at his answer and kept silent. Let's have a word of prayer as we Continue this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to come to your word, to learn, to grow. We pray that it would help us to be reminded of some great truths to put our our lives into the worship which you deserve, and that what we do in and through these bodies that you have given us would bring praise and glory to you. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here the plan, of we've seen, is to send these spies in to trick Jesus. And the the question they bring up is is one where we saw last week would, would cause different answers from different people, but the hope is that he will answer one way or another so that they can eventually, really, the end game is to get Rome involved so that Rome will kill him. But Jesus doesn't allow them to do that. And so he answers their question with this answer in verse 25. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus answers their question by pointing us to consider what belongs to God. So he takes that question and he he answers it, but he goes even deeper than what they answered so that we have to look at ourselves. So we have to understand and contemplate what he means by that. It's clear what he meant by what belongs to Caesar because that was the question they asked. The question then that we've been considering is what belongs to God. Last week we discovered that we belong to God and we considered three reasons for that. We belong to God for three reasons. One, you are his creation. You are his creation. Secondly, you bear his image. And we noted that those two things are universal. That is true for everyone. Whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ or not, those two truths are absolute. You are his creation and you bear his image. The third one was more specifically aimed at the believer. And that's where we'll continue a little bit more today. And that is you carry his presence. You carry his presence. Those are the why. That's the why we give to God. Today we want to talk a little bit more about what we give to God. The, the more practical aspects, what does that look like? What does it mean when we say that we need to give ourselves to God? So the answer to what belongs to God is you. The next question is, what do we give to God? The big answer to that question, the full answer to that question, is Worship. What belongs to God, you do. What do we give to God? Worship. And that's what leads us to our text that we, we looked at a little bit last week and we'll continue to consider this morning in First Corinthians chapter six and verse 19. Most of our time will spend in verse 20, but verse 19 uh, and 20 say this. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. That answers that part of our question, that you carry his presence. Verse 20, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It's that second verse, verse 20, we want to focus a little bit more on and consider the implications of that as it relates to what Jesus told us before, that we need to give to God what belongs to God. What belongs, that's us. How do we do it? We do it through worship. What does that mean? Firstly, in this verse, in verse 20, Jesus gives us, or, or Paul, through the inspiration of God, gives us the reason to worship. The reason to worship, and he begins there that there is a purchase Price. There is a price that has been paid for you and for me. As we are believers in Jesus Christ, we recognize that a price has been paid for what we have. And so he says, for you were bought at a price. To understand more fully what that means, it means that we need to consider the problem of sin. Sin is at the core of this. This is what that whole price and what the, the buying and the redeeming all comes together and all means. It means that there is an, an issue there for which we need to be bought from, some debt that needs to be paid. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Paul reminds us of the same thing in Romans when he said, But God be thanked. That though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. That is, there was a point where we were enslaved to sin. And what he is doing and what he did when he bought that, bought us or paid the price for us is that he freed us. The price of sin, which we have, have talked very often about and, and remind us of often. The price of sin is what needed to be paid. What can't pay for sin? We're told in 1 Peter, knowing that you were not redeemed or bought back with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. That is, there's no way that you can buy yourself out of this. You can't buy yourself out of this. Everything that we we do is always tinted, is always tinged by this slavery and this imprint of sin on our lives. And the debt for that, as we we know so well from Romans chapter six and verse twenty three is death for the wages of sin is death. James reminds us in James chapter two and verse ten that it only takes one small offense to make us guilty. If you offend in any point you 're guilty of it all you don 't have to keep uh, uh, all of it, and you can pick and choose the bits as long as you keep the whole mostly. If you break one part of the law, you have broken the law, it makes you guilty. Where was this price paid? This is what we've celebrated in the weeks past, the payment of this sin which happened at Calvary. You know, in Luke chapter twenty, where we began and where this, this little journey we're on here at the moment takes us, Jesus is almost there. He is on his way, he's he's really essentially moments away. From paying the debt that we owe for sin, this is why he was purposely headed there, moving his way. he would be lifted up on a cross so that we could be saved. He came to pay the debt for our sin. in First John chapter two and verse two it says, "And he himself, that is Jesus, He is the propitiation or the appeasing." For our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. See these, these Pharisees and these Sadducees and the Herodians and the scribes and all those who were trying to come against Jesus because He was undermining their authority and undermining their, uh, their hold on the people, they thought that their their plan would trap Jesus. They thought that if they came and they could, they could trick him some way and trap him and then Rome could take him and they would be free of him. But they were playing right into his plan. Jesus was using their trickery. He was using their, their schemes and, and their flattery and their, their mocking, all of that. While they thought they were trying to get him, he was using that to bring about his great purpose he was using them to achieve the purpose which he came for and in just a few moments from there, from there a, a, a couple of days at at best he would be hanging on a cross as a result what do we do with with this what is the reason for worship jesus has come and he's paid the price he purchased the price to buy us from sin And as I say so often, what this means is it leaves us in a place where there must be a decision made, a a personal acceptance happens. What do I believe? What do I do with what Jesus did here? In Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, Paul is witnessing to uh, a family, the the Roman jailer in Philippi, who had had arrested him and and then who uh, saw him escape by God's great power and brought him to his family. And And Paul tells them about the gospel and in reply they want to know, what do we do? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Galatians, Paul reminds us, but the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We can be free from this burden of debt, this slavery of sin, by believing on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the purchaser. He is the purchaser. He has purchased us, from God's wrath. See, contrary to what some people want to believe or what some people say and do, we were not being held uh, by Satan to where God owed Satan anything. God didn't pay the debt to pay Satan so he could free us from Satan. The, The reason we are under judgment and the reason that we will find death is because we are under the very wrath of God. The debt that is owed was to God. We are under his wrath. In 1 John 2, verse 2, which we read just a moment ago, it said, And he is, and he himself, is the propitiation for our sins. That is, the appeasing of our sins. Jesus was the one who appeased God's wrath. Who appeased God's wrath. So, he purchased us, from God's wrath. He took us out from under the wrath of God and he purchased us to God's love. He pays the price, which removes us out of God's wrath, from under his wrath, and places us into the very love of God. Back in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, it says uh, says here in verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from his wrath through him. Verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See, those verses tell us that, that very thing, that we were bought, that we were purchased, that we were brought out from God's wrath and brought into God's love. So the first thing that we're reminded of here as we look in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 6 is that there is a reason for worship. And the reason that we as the people of God have for worship is that we were bought with a price. The debt we owed has been paid. That's the reason for worship. Now we move to the purpose of worship. It says, for you were bought at a price therefore glorify God in your body. The purpose for worship. This is this is the purpose of life. This is what our life is about. This is what our eyes are open to see. When when we realize and recognize that those three truths are that we spoke about before are right, that we are his creation, that we bear his image, and then in believing him we carry his presence. When we see these things, we come to understand, we come to see that my life's great purpose, my life's great goal is to bring glory to God. To give praise and worship to Him. And so we pursue God's glory. We chase after it. It becomes our consuming passion to give God glory. See, contrary to what our world thinks and and to what we are naturally inclined in our own selves to think, we are not the highest goal of life. The highest goal of life is is not me, is not what makes me happy, is, is not what satisfies me. I am not the highest goal of life. The duty of every Christian is to pursue the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15 says, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. See, when Christ died, and I believe that, I, I understand that now my life is not my own. It is now his, and I will give my life for him. Pursuing anything other than God, chasing after anything other than God that I think will satisfy, it's, it's to settle for less than what I was created for. It's to settle for less than, than what I was designed for. We were created for more than ourselves. We find satisfaction and true joy and peace and contentment in more than ourselves. We find it in God himself. Now, this is not an option. So the idea to pursue the glory of God, to live for the glory of God and to live my life in worship, this is not an option for the believer. This is not what God says is, well, look, now that you believe me for salvation, you can do whatever you want, but really, here's another option. You can live for me and you can pursue me and you can try and make me look good and and proclaim my gospel around the world. That's one option you have. Or you can continue living for yourself and doing your own thing and finding your own way. It's not an option. It is now that you believe me and, and you have, have been saved from your sin and I have paid your debt, now your life is for me. It is what God is due. It is what he is worthy of. Back in the uh, 1800s, there was a man named George Mueller. Many of you are, will be familiar with him. He was famous for having orphanages in Bristol, England, England. And in his running of those orphanages and, and all he was, he was famous or brought to be so well known because of his life of faith and prayer. And in regard to how those orphanages continued to go on and he trusted God, he said this. The first and primary object of the work, that is the orphanages, was and still is that God might be magnified By the fact that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need only by prayer and faith without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers whereby it may be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayers still. That is, what was his main objective? Did he want to make sure that those children were cared for? Yes. Did he genuinely care for those children? Yes, he did. That is clear from his life and what he saw. But was that his main objective? No, that was a result of his primary objective. That God be glorified. That people could see that God would take care of these children. That God would provide for them because he is a good and faithful God actively bringing glory to God so we proclaim God's glory Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 a verse which we have seen this year and have contemplated this year let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven not just for our benefit I live for the glory of God so that others will come to know God and love God and live for his glory. The question that arises from that as Jesus spoke to us about this, about what we give to God and considering that my life needs to proclaim God is to ask ourselves, does my life do that? Does my life show the glory of God so that others will see God, want to know God and live for him? How uh, does your life do that? How can it improve? What areas need to be changed? Where, where can I change my life and move it so that others can look at me and see the glory of God? To see that God is worth it. First Peter chapter 2, and verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Here's the purpose of that worship expressed. It's proclaimed in our body for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. That purpose, that great Uh, Idea of worship is expressed through what God has given us in this physical body. Worship isn't just some idea, isn't just an attitude, it isn't just a a, a song or a prayer, it is our life. Which is why when we said, what belongs to God, what do we give to God? You. It means everything. And that's what Paul is telling us in these verses. Therefore glorify God in your life body. What does it mean to glorify God in body? In Philippians chapter 1, Paul will describe it this way. It says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. That is, I will live every moment of this life up to and including my death for him so that people can see that God is great, that God is faithful, that God is worthy, that God is good. Can I give just a a couple of of areas of life where that uh, can be seen to be true? And in each of these, uh, in considering them It's not a fun thing to consider and I certainly don't enjoy considering these things because in every area I'm about to mention there are glaring issues in my own life. Areas that I know in my own life where I fall short, fall way short of bringing glory to God in these areas and these are things that I'm reminded I must pursue. I must bring into subjection the first is in our relationships in our relationships you're living selflessly is a, a life that reflects Jesus Christ back in in Matthew chapter 20 Let me just read a few verses here from Matthew chapter 20 uh, or in verse 26 we'll get to where Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, it says, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You're living a life of selflessness is a life which reflects Jesus Christ. We live for the good of others when we give ourselves and sacrifice ourselves in our relationships, so that others can grow, so that others can be better, so that others can have what they need and see Christ. That is Christ likeness. This is true in in our emotional way we interact and relate emotionally and, and physically. It's true in our relationships with the unsaved around us as much as it is in our relationships with the saved. It's true in our marriage relationships and it's true in our family relationships and in all of those aspects. As we move forward, as we think of this about how to glorify God in our relationships, think of a relationship. It probably won't be hard for you right now to be able to think of a relationship now where you say, that relationship needs growth. It needs to express the glory of God more clearly, more fully. How can I do that? How can I bring glory to God in my relationship with my children? How can I improve or show the glory of God more completely in the relationship with my wife or with my neighbors? How do I need to move in those relationships so that God is seen to be all that He is? So we proclaim it in our relationships, we proclaim it in our words. James chapter 1 verse 26 says if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart this one's religion is useless. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15 that we are to speak the truth in love. The way we speak and what we speak but not just, not just how you talk but what you talk about. Does our conversations and the way we speak of things and of people and of rulers and, and and governors or of our work or of our families? What does the way we speak and what we speak of say about God? Do we talk of the gospel? Does Christ find his way into our conversations? Does his grace find his way into our words? In the way that we interact with people. We need to glorify God in our relationships, in our words. Thirdly, in our health. In our health. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul very uh, forcefully and and very strongly says these words in 1 Corinthians 9. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. You see, how you treat your body isn't the goal. It's not not about how you look or whether you have a, a great body image of yourself or how you feel about yourself or what you do, that you have the perfect specimen of a body. That's not the point But it does need to be looked after. It needs to be disciplined and taken care of. I was reminded the other day of my my own Cummings and that. We were talking the other day at the office about uh, one of our colleagues who drinks far too much Red Bull. Uh, I mean, you you can imagine I there's one or two of those cans is bad, but he'll go through four to six in a day. Then, we, as we were talking and we were talking about that, one was reminded that they smoke. Smoking and drinking that much Red Bull isn't good. And I was reminded I drink too much Coke. We all have our little vices that, that way in our health, where we need to make sure that our health glorifies God. We need to glorify God in our relationships, in our words, in our health, and fourthly, in our works. In our works. That is, how am I actively, how am I actively giving glory to God? The things that I do, the way that I live, you know, in your your work, in your vocation, or even in your retirement. What are you doing with the time you spend in these places or on these things? Or at school? In the way that we look after others, in our witness, we are all called to be missionaries to reach out with the love of God to those around us, as one uh, famous pastor says, to bind this all together don 't waste your life now I know as we look in first Corinthians six and we bring this to its Conclusion, I know there are some translations where the last part of this verse isn't included. It says, and in your spirit, which are God's. It's worth considering these words because they are certainly implied, if not directly here, certainly throughout all of God's word. The way we glorify God is not just in our bodies, but also in our spirit. The worship that we give to God the way that we we grow in our spiritual walk with God, our attitudes and our motivations. It is a relationship with God that is growing, constantly growing. What is the purpose achieve? What is the end result? What are we doing all of this for? Why live for God's glory like this? So that people will find salvation people will find salvation we read a moment ago from 1st peter chapter 2 it says but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood of a holy nation his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light ultimately how is god glorified ultimately god is glorified through the salvation of people I want my life, every part of it, to help people find Jesus, not hinder them. I want people to look at my life and as much as is possible within me and by the grace of God at work in me, that they can see God, that they will be drawn closer to God, that they will be helped to grow in God and find salvation in Him not hindered by me. As we've said before, I want to be a light to God, to light the way, to share the gospel of God's good news with all those around me and that they can see in my life that I genuinely believe it. I believe it because I live it and I pursue it. Sure, maybe they'll look at my life and they'll see that yes, there are places where I am hypocritical in many ways. And there are areas where I do not meet God's standard, where I fall way short, but that they can see in my life that I'm pursuing that. but That is my great goal, my great desire. So that people can find salvation. And secondly, so that people will have a passion for God and His work. if anything can come from my life, if these two things can be the legacy that are left behind in my life because of the way I live, because of what I give for God, that people will find salvation and that in finding salvation they will grow to have a passion for God, if those two things can be seen in my life when the time comes for me to leave this world, I will have done what I believe is the best. God's glory is achieved when His people are passionate for Him passionate for his work, that, that in our living for God, that we can inspire others to live for God, uplift them, encourage them, educate them and empower them to live for God? Are we desperate for him, passionately pursuing his glory? We belong to God because he created us in his image and for his glory. What rightfully belongs to God is our worship. It begins by rejecting the lies of sin that I am my own ruler. Believing that I am accountable to God and submitting to him in repentance and faith. And that salvation that we find in him puts us in an amazing place. We're saved from sin and we're saved from death and we're brought out of wrath and into life. We're brought into fellowship with God and worship becomes our goal. Worship becomes our great purpose and our great passion of life. You worship God with all you have and with all you are to proclaim and live for the glory of God. See the world doesn't need to see more Christians. What the world needs to see more of. Is Christ. Doesn't need to see more religious people. It needs to see people who are genuinely pursuing Jesus. Who are showing the way to Jesus. Jesus. The reason we need to give our lives to God is because it belongs to Him. Does my life, does your life proclaim the glory of God? Am I listening to the Spirit and am I aligning myself and my life to the Word of God? There's a poem by Christina Rossetti which we sing usually at Christmas in a song. The idea is, is as the, the wise men and the shepherds come to Jesus, they're looking at him saying that the wise men give their gifts and the shepherds can, can give their songs, but what can I give? Poor as I am, I will give him my heart. This is what belongs to God. This is what he deserves. It is what he is worthy of. We're going to have a moment of prayer and then we're going to sing just one song of response before we close with a benediction. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that though on so many occasions it is uplifting and encouraging and, and strengthening, that also at times it is challenging and direct. And there are many things about our considerations today, dear God, which are challenging and direct because we are reminded that our lives are for you. So dear God, help us to live our lives for you. To stop this week and to consider very practically how can my life show glory to you and draw people to salvation. Dear God, we pray that through our lives, you would be drawing people to see Jesus Christ, to know his salvation and to love him above all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.